Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this series, clinical investigators visit oncologists in community-based practice. And for this program on colorectal cancer, Dr. Charles Fuchs visits the practice of Dr. Philip Glynn. And to begin, Dr. Glynn comments on the first patient they visited, a young woman with primary colon cancer that appeared to directly invade the liver. The first patient is a 38-year-old female who had been experiencing several weeks of abdominal discomfort and then had an episode of passing bright red blood per rectum. She underwent a colonoscopy. She had a lesion at the splenic flexure. This was biopsied, and it was a moderately well-differentiated adenocarcinoma. She subsequently did have a CAT scan that showed a lesion at the transverse colon. She underwent a right hemicolectomy. She had assessment of peripancreatic nodes as well as nodes around the greater curvature. There was a suspicious abnormality in the left lobe of the liver. The lesion in the liver appeared to be contiguous with the primary lesion from the transverse colon. And the patient had this lesion excised along with the transverse colon lesion. In addition to the liver lesion being positive, five of 68 nodes showed metastatic disease. So just to clarify, so this is sort of direct invasion from the primary into the liver? Well, it was, and it's hard to detect that on the CAT scan. The preoperative CAT scan, it's difficult to see that, but the surgeon said that he felt an abnormality. He felt that it was contiguous at the time of his surgery. So intraoperatively, he thought it was contiguous. Charlie, how often do we see this? Not often at all, Neil. And in fact, it's interesting because I noticed the pathologist staged it as M1A. In other words, presumably the pathologist may not have gotten that message from the surgeon and thought that this was actually an isolated met to the liver. But, you know, I think in these circumstances, we really have to defer to the surgeon as to what they saw in the operating room. And from your point of view, does this differ prognostically in terms of the typical situation where I guess it's more hematogenous spread to the liver? I think so, because obviously you're going from stage three to stage four. Stage three, if we take the surgeon's point of view, stage four, if we sort of let the pathologist just in an isolated form refer to that as an isolated liver metastasis. So where is this woman right now? So shortly after her surgery, which was several weeks ago, The patient was interested, perhaps not keen, but interested in considering some treatment. We went over the role of adjuvant chemotherapy. I met with her on a couple of occasions and discussed at length the issue of that this was an on-block resection and that hopefully she would benefit significantly from chemotherapy. We went over data from adjuvant online, and she decided to go ahead with chemotherapy and actually had the port placed. And then about four or five days before she was due to start, she decided to not pursue treatment. She said she was going to look into alternative therapy, and she didn't want to be burdened with chemotherapy at this point, and she would consider it down the line. So we want to pursue a little bit, particularly in terms of this interesting, I guess maybe a little unusual decision not to get treated But before we do, just to sort of focus again back on this clinically, Charlie, would you approach this any differently if she just had five positive nodes as opposed to five positive nodes plus this liver lesion? Well, as I say, I really do defer to the surgeon, Neil. So on the basis of what the surgeon tells us, I would assume that this is a T4B lesion, namely that it invaded into the liver contiguous from a transverse colon lesion. 
And in addition, obviously, with five positive nodes, look at this as a T4B N2 lesion. So I would, on that basis, stage it as a stage three, and like Phil, would strongly encourage this woman to consider post-operative adjuvant therapy. And again, I would liken it to adjuvant therapy as opposed to the treatment of stage four disease. So can you talk a little bit more, Phil, about this woman as a person, her work, her life situation, and her lack of interest in receiving chemo? So she's a very nice woman. She has two children, ages 11 and 15, and she's employed as a counselor in the correctional system locally. She's very responsible, a very pleasant person. A spouse? She has a significant other, and she came in today with her mother, who had been in with her on one other occasion. She asks questions that are pertinent, and she listens carefully. I'm always curious, did she at any time, including today, say, what would you do if it were you? She did not say that today. Actually, both Charlie and I did offer our opinions of what we would do if it were us. What did you say? I told her that I think that she should take treatment, and if I was in her situation, that I would take treatment. Charlie, what were your impressions of her in terms of this issue? Well, she was a very thoughtful person. I actually asked her what it was about chemotherapy that gave her such fear and trepidation. And oftentimes, I think many of us find that there's a history, like a parent or a sibling or somebody close to them who's been through an ordeal with chemotherapy and the outcome was poor, and that sort of leads them to conclude that any chemotherapy is something that should be avoided. I asked her that specific question. She said, no, it's really what she had heard about chemotherapy. So I think Phil did a great job, and I certainly chimed in as well, to try to put into context what adjuvant therapy for colon cancer was like and that it would really be manageable, that it wouldn't turn her life upside down, because that was clearly her general impression. And I think at the end, she really did believe that. But I think that was her a priori impression of chemotherapy. You know, it's interesting. We've been studying people in the adjuvant situation from an education point of view now for about five years in a project. And we found that most people who are considering adjuvant chemo for colorectal cancer expect to have nausea, vomiting, and hair loss, and are kind of surprised, Phil, when they don't have it. Yeah. And that actually became one of our focal points of conversation today, that this was something that she was going to be able to tolerate, that she was otherwise in perfectly good health, and that it was our job to get her through this treatment, and that we were pretty confident that that was going to happen readily. Now, did you bring up the possibility, I don't know whether it would be a possibility for you, of receiving capecitabine alone? Well, Charlie and I talked about that afterwards, and she seemed to be more receptive to the idea of treatment. And I think that if you look at the adjuvant online data, there's a substantial drop-off here for a 38-year-old by taking just capecitabine alone or fluoroperimidine alone. So based on that, we didn't get into the conversation. I won't be surprised if down the line, if she runs into obstacles with treatment, that that becomes a discussion point. Now, are you thinking of Folfox or Zellox? Folfox. And Charlie, if this lady were to say maybe she has said, or maybe this has been discussed, what's your best estimate of my chance of relapse without anything with full fox and with just the floor permitting? What numbers would you give her? Well, you know, I think that you have to presume that her risk of recurrence is substantial, even with adjuvant therapy, given a T4B N2 lesion. And so 
you know, I would probably think in the range of maybe 40 to 50% disease-free survival. So you could be talking about a 50 to 60% chance of recurrence. That may be overly pessimistic given the, you know, the better outcome we're seeing with Folfox, because a lot of that data was really from the National Cancer Database data that was really preceded widespread use of the mosaic data. But again, what number would you give for no treatment, risk of relapse, and with Folfox? Oh, I think that without treatment, if she just does surgery alone, I actually would think that her likelihood of recurrence is probably 80%. And you think it would come down to 40 or 50 with Folfox? I think so, yeah. And that's actually pretty much exactly what came up in Adjuvant Online. And what about with fluoropyrimidine alone? Well, I think you're going to get a benefit, but it's going to be attenuated. So I think you're potentially going to have a, you know upwards of a 65%, maybe even slightly higher chance of recurrence. It's not to say that capecitabine alone isn't beneficial, but I agree with Phil, particularly after meeting her, that she's really struggling with this. And albeit, I don't think it's an unreasonable option. I think if we threw too many options at her, given what she's struggling with, I think it'd actually be harder for her. Any sense, Phil, right now in terms of what the number one concern is that she has? Missing work, being sick? What do you think it is? I think that's one and two right there. She's a very devoted mother. She has an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old. She is already feeling some pinch for having missed work for several weeks. She's due to go back this week. And I think that she has some apprehensions about being sick. But I do think that during the course of the discussion, those apprehensions became a little less pronounced. So what do you think is going to happen? I think she's going to do fine. I think she'll get through the first cycle and she'll be a little bit more comfortable with things. And by the time we get to the two and three, she'll be counting them down until she's done. It's interesting. I think we all recognize that oncology, there are very few black and white issues. And maybe I'm exaggerating by referring to it as such here. But in fact, you know, the benefit of adjuvant therapy is so considerable, particularly for a young person with young children. You know, I think both Phil and I were probably of a similar mindset with her. We really felt it was important to try to explain to her chemotherapy, try to assuage her fears, and really encourage her to do it. Now, you mentioned she had verbalized an interest in alternative medicine. What type of specific alternative approach? Anything? No, she really didn't get into any specifics. What would you say? Again, I don't know if this came up in the conversation. Charlie, you've been involved in some of the most interesting work I've seen in terms of recurrence in the adjuvant setting, looking at diet, exercise, vitamin levels, etc. What was this woman's weight, her BMI, her exercise level? Is that something you would talk to her about? Well, I think it's absolutely worth talking about. I think it's essential we do that. She's actually looking quite fit. I mean, she has a normal BMI. She looks like she's actually pretty active. I noticed her son was actually a dancer. dancer. Yeah. So it seems like there's sort of an interest in the family. And her mother was actually reasonably fit as well. So it seems like it's a family that probably takes good care of themselves. You know, on this visit, the agenda item was first and probably exclusively, let's get you to accept adjuvant therapy. But I agree with you, Neil. I think it's really incumbent upon all of us as oncologists to recognize the value of these lifestyle modifications because they clearly have a long-term health benefit. And I appreciate the plug. I think our research suggests that it probably impacts colon cancer outcome as well. You know, it was really fascinating. A lot of the data that came out of the trial that was negative for chemo, which is an arena tecan containing regimen, and yet you all mined the data or collected data prospectively and 
you know, really stunning. It's kind of like what we've seen, Phil, on breast cancer, the wind study, you know, mm-hmm. where we saw yep. this effect. Yep. Of course, that was a prospective setting. Do you bring this up, Phil, in the adjuvant setting and when? I bring it up routinely. In fact, in each exam room, I have the ASCO guidelines about diet, exercise, and I have that framed right in the exam room. It's an important discussion. Again, today's visit was about getting her committed to the idea of chemotherapy, but I absolutely will be coming back to talk to her about diet and exercise, and I monitor vitamin D levels with each visit. And just to clarify, Charlie, if you're going to make recommendations in terms of diet and exercise, what kinds of recommendations? And if they're going to get adjuvant therapy, when do you usually bring this up? If we can, I try to bring it up at the first visit. If it's a patient such as this where you're really dealing with a lot of trepidation, maybe even some emotional issues, obviously we'll table that. But I try to get it done within the first three visits. And then I'll talk to them about the benefit of maintaining a healthy weight, uh, moderate diet, and exercise. And I really emphasize exercise. And I try to encourage them, even if it's something they've never contemplated before. You know, I talk to them about trying to schedule just walks several times a week to get into the rhythm of doing that. Right. And I was amazed at your data because it looked like it wasn't that much exercise, I think maybe four times walking a week or something like that. That's exactly right. Because as you know, we mined CLGB89803, which was the arena TCAN adjuvant study. And albeit it's not a randomized trial, it is prospective in that these folks gave us this information at study onset. So we followed them only after they told us about their physical activity. And because, you know, these people are on average in their 60s, Most of them, if they were active, was principally through walking. And you're absolutely right. Those who walked regularly had almost a 40% improvement in their disease-free survival. And it's really amazing. I mean, we're talking about recurrence here. You know, it's always struck me. Is there anything going on right now in terms of prospectively finding out more about these connections, particularly translationally, what's going on? Why recurrence rate would be lower? Absolutely. You know, we think that energy balance, as it's sometimes described in terms of exercise and diet and obesity is a major driver for colon pathogenesis and probably other solid tube malignancies, that these pathways that these things affect are clearly relevant. And so we're trying to understand the mediators, one of which we think is insulin, as we all recognize, you know, diabetics who exercise and or avoid obesity have a lower insulin requirement. They're less insulin resistant. And what we think is going on here is that people who are sedentary or obese have higher levels of circulating insulin, which is pretty clear in the laboratory to be trophic for these cancer cells. So we actually then looked at, it's hard to measure insulin because it fluctuates so regularly. We measured sort of other things, other surrogates such as C-peptide and insulin binding proteins. And what we find is that they similarly do predict outcome, namely in the nurse's health study, If we take the colon cancer population, patients in that study, and look at essentially their baseline levels of C-peptide, it actually predicts their risk of recurrence. So final question, Phil. This is a young person, 38 years old, who's getting colon cancer. What thoughts did you have, and also I want to find out from Charlie, in terms of working her up from a genetic point of view, you know, the issue in terms of her children, for example? Well, Charlie and I talked about that, actually. The pathology had originally sent out for evaluation for Lynch syndrome, although there's no big family history here. I was pretty careful about taking the family history. So she has MLH1 and MSH2 and MSH6 studies pending. Anything else that you would recommend, Charlie, in a situation like this? 
No, I think I agree with Phil. I would definitely start with assessing for mismatch repair deficiency. Now, if there is elements of MMR deficiency, then I think that one would really feel pressed to go back and look at do some germline testing. If she's mismatch repair intact, given the age of 38, you might still send off those tests looking for Lynn syndrome, although it certainly speaks to the possibility that this is just a sporadic case.